Hello and welcome to the Hoop Collective Podcast. We talk about the NBA. We're doing it on Sunday evening. And joining me from Austin, Texas is the Professor Kirk Goldsberry. Hello, sir. Hello, Brian. It's great to see you this evening. How are you doing? What is a little darling? I think you did you wear that hat before there in Austin, Texas? Little darling. I love the little darling. It's a restaurant bar in South. Inconvenient to my house, unfortunately, but oh. one of my favorite spots to go. We'll go next time you're here for an Austin Spurs game. Yeah, we'd love to come. Um, you had a big weekend. Uh, you were part of history. On Friday night, you were one of the, what was the number? 63,000? No, I think it was 68,300 and change. I like to think I was the 68,323rd person. I think that's the number. No, um, that's not true because you sent me a photo from much earlier in the day when it was empty. <laughs> you were there very early. You know, that was part of the coolest thing. I was one of the first people in the building. I didn't know what I was getting into. I got there super early, one, because I wanted to see people from the Warriors. I wanted to see my old friends from the Spurs. And I wanted to see the setup. I've been there in the same building for the Final Four. Uh, but this was different. They didn't have the exact same configuration. But I got to watch almost like in real life one of those time-lapse things as it went from nothing to everything. And it was really cool. I was I was sort of shocked at how cool I thought it was when the game tipped off. It was it was pretty remarkable. Well, what we're talking about is last Friday night, the Spurs uh, aimed and then did break the NBA record for most fans ever at a game. They played at the Alamo Dome, which is where they played in uh, for about 16, 17 years throughout the 90s, uh, maybe the late 80s, early 90s. They, they, they play at the Hemisphere Arena. Mm-hmm. When they first got to San Antonio, which was in downtown-ish, and they played the Alamo Dome, and then they moved over to the current arena, which is uh, the AT&T. Is it still the AT&T Center? Is it? Have it is. Name? Yes, the house that Tim Duncan built. Yes. Absolutely, literally, like it was. It was like <laughs> it, it was kind of like on the ballot. It, it, it's uh, this is just a little outside downtown, across the street from a cemetery. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's, not, it's not. It's not one of the league's most walkable arenas. No, downtown San Antonio is such a charming place, and uh, it is not in downtown. However, having said all that, um, they they got in uh, the arena set up. They put it in the center of the, uh, the the dome so that they could maximize the seating. That's not the way the Spurs used to play. When the Spurs played there, they they stuck it in like an end zone, so it was a little bit better sight lines, a lot better sight lines probably, but. Um, a lot of people talked about how bad the seats were, but that wasn't the point. The point wasn't a great viewing experience. The point was the experience in general, I, I guess, right? Yeah, the, the point was, you know, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the franchise. They're doing a few things. They're playing a couple games up here in Austin in April, which I'm excited about. They played Mexico. This was a way to honor some of those teams that really lifted the franchise up from sort of a forgettable franchise, let's be honest. You think about David and Sean and Avery guys uh, really setting up the stage for the dynasty that came in the early 2000s. So it was really cool, like I said, and, and it didn't hurt that Steph Curry was there uh, yeah. and the Warriors played really well on offense and ended up wiping the floor with Spurs. But that's not the point either. They always People always talk like it's so hard to shoot in the domes because of the uh, backdrop. And I don't doubt any of that. You know, the deeper backdrop messes with depth perception. But the Spurs put up like 147. 
Yeah, the Warriors. I mean, the, the, uh, the Warriors. The Warriors put up 147. Yeah, so it, it turns couldn't have out been that, that bad. Yeah, it turns out it's just college guys that can't shoot, but they can't shoot in any gym. So it's it was <laughs> Steph and, and Clay and those guys played really well on offense. It was super fun though, and like you said, it was history. Uh, and I would team to try to do this, Brian. I think that this could be a, a new sort of chase for other franchises around the league to play in a football stadium and try to get to seventy thousand. Yeah, I mean, you could do it. I mean, uh, there's obviously some, some trying to think what the, you know, the best chance would be. I mean, Atlanta, I don't know if the Hawks, uh, you know, this was a special occasion. You know, the Atlanta, you could do it. I mean, in you know, Dallas, they played the All-Star game there. Yep. Um, I think and- that's a good one. Atlanta had the record. Michael Jordan played. I don't know if it was it's obviously not in the in the current dome, but it, no, it's in the Georgia dome in his last. That, I think in his last bull season. Yes, that was the record. One of the last bull seasons. Yeah, he that was the last. That was the record that the Spurs broke on Friday. Was in Atlanta. I think they could do it again. I think. Yeah, who did you say? Dallas candidate potentially even like the Lakers in SoFi. Um, yeah, there's a couple interesting concepts out there, but we'll, we'll see if this starts a trend. Yeah, I should look up what the all what the attendance was at the uh, Dallas All Star game. It was between ninety and hundred, I think. It was a big number. It was a terrible setting. I mean, basically, you came to watch on TV. Um, oh my God, a hundred and eight thousand! Wow, jeez, wow! It was a miracle I even got out. I got out of the arena that night. Uh, I I remember there were there was obscene prices being charged for parking. Oh, anyway, that's either here nor there. Um, that record, I guess, probably will not come down. I guess that's technically the the basketball game record, right? That this is a regular season game record. Yeah, I didn't remember it was a hundred eight thousand. Oh my god, I can't believe that many people came to see that slop. Anyway. Sorry. Um, so you um, were you were taking a look at um, um, using your uh, unique way that you look at the game. Um, and you were looking at uh, some some trends and some things that stuck out, stuck, stuck out to you, stuck out to you um, through the first half of the season, um, which I think you're going to have in a uh, story on ESPN.com later this week. I don't want to steal too much thunder from it. But you really dug into um, why the superstars out there. How many how many guys as of this moment are averaging over thirty? Um, I got five guys. I think it's five. five. Yeah, in the piece we had five. If if somebody dips under that, it'll be it'll be four. But it's five. And you know, ten years ago, nobody did that. Um, I think the other stat that's pretty staggering on the just the points per game thing is that forty four players are currently averaging. 20 per game only 11 did that 10 years ago um but yeah yeah, Luke, yeah not in 1966 although that was actually in the high speed anyway but not in 1994 we're talking about 2012 or 2013-14 not long ago that was the lebron's last year in miami you know to put yeah. them in perspective the spurs last title mm-hmm. um 11 guys in the league averaged 20 points like this is not like 2002 where games are routinely played in the seventies. This is, you know, 10 years ago, the three point uh, shooting was happening. The Spurs were, 
um, you know, changing the offensive game for the better. I mean, only 11 guys. I mean, that used to be averaging 20 points used to be a big deal. Now 44. Wow. Um, but anyway, you kind of dug into why you thought that, that, the, the you know, what trend that you're seeing. And I thought it was interesting. I thought you could share it with the listeners. Yeah, again, this piece is going to come out on ESPN uh, Monday. And, and I think the, the biggest thing is that modern NBA offenses, Brian, are increasingly just concentrated around superstars and their star players. Um, it's sort of, I think, I like to call it the Harden slash Doncic effect. Uh, more and more teams are just giving the best players the ball and letting them cook over and over again. Um, there's a lot of factors but I think one of the bigger underlying reasons is just the usage rate of the best players in the league is soaring. Um, I think we're on pace to shatter uh, the record for number of games with the usage rate of over 40. Now, for, for the non-nerdy listeners, usage rate, slightly advanced metric, the percentage of the possessions a player uses when he's on the floor is shot, turnover, going to the free throw line. Uh, so perfect example of this when Donovan Mitchell, you know, creates 99 points, uh, 71 as a scorer, 28 as a passer, he used 41% of the possessions that night. Those are the types of underlying numbers we're seeing. I think Darius Garland didn't play that night. So he had the keys to the car the whole night. Uh, and those are the kinds of nights that are leading uh, to these crazy stat lines, Brian. It's not just the box score numbers are crazy or the game is faster. It's that players like Luca and Donovan Mitchell and Giannis are having super high usage nights that their coaches are fine with them just running the running the show over and over again. Because it's working. It's working. I always say hero ball never went away. It just went to MIT. It got a stats degree and it <laughs> rebranded itself as heliocentric basketball. <laughs> heliocentric so sounds a lot better than hero ball. But I, it's, I like. It's, uh, another way to look at it, if you don't like that, it's hero ball plus the analytics era equals this heliocentric thing. Because what you're saying is it is, it works. It is efficient. Giving Luca or Harden the, the ball over and over again and kind of spreading everybody else out and watching them go to work gets it done on offense. And, and they're very low-risk plays, low turnovers, a lot of, of offensive rewards. So, yeah, you're exactly right. It's kind of easy. It's efficient. Um, and it's working. So let me ask you about this. In 2005, 2006, which was still a bit of the dark era of, uh, of scoring, they put in the hand check rule and that led to uh, an inflation in scoring. But still, we hadn't really weren't stretching the floor. Kobe had that year where he averaged 35.4 points a game. Um, now he was chucking the, the, Shaq had been traded. The you know the team was really struggling to to be competitive. He took twenty seven shots a game. Shot forty five percent. Took seven threes a game back then, which was you know a little bit ahead of his time. And he shot thirty five percent on them. So that would be sort of like of my you know of my lifetime, my lifetime, but my time covering the NBA. That would be the biggest like the sort of most ball dominant season that i had seen um yeah and that year kobe had the highest usage rate 
of his career, which was 38.7, which will not surprise you, led the NBA. <laughs> um, so let me ask you this. What do you think if Kobe was, you know, that was, you know, in his prime, what do you think Kobe would do now? Or was he just playing 2023 basketball in 2006 and then he'd done the exact same thing? He kind of, he kind of was. And I think if he had the benefit of, of a spread offense with a ton of three point shooters around him back then, like today's, today's offensive have like Lucas offense, uh, I think he would have put up crazy numbers. And I think you're exactly right to bring that season up. It, 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 it is an outlier. Uh, is an outlier even for Kobe. Uh, right. But I think there's two other things that that happen around then. And I always think there's there's some of us that think the 2004 finals when Detroit just smothered Kobe led to some rule changes to, quote unquote, open up the game to let Kobe cook. Uh, but what happens right after that is the emergence of Steve Nash and that Phoenix offense led by Mike D'Antoni's coaching. Nash, a slight point guard, wins two point guards, uh, two straight MVPs. Uh, running around the teeth of the defense in a way that he couldn't have done 10 years before that. But remember Mike D'Antoni, also the head coach of Harden in Houston. And to me, that's the third one here, Brian. It, I give I give you the seven seconds or less. I give you the Kobe 0506. But then let's fast forward a decade and look at those Houston Rockets teams. And I really think that's where people started to say, oh my God, just give your best player the ball at the top of the arc run run high screens for him, let him shoot threes off the dribble or drive and get fouled or create an open three for a teammate. It's a copycat league. That's what Dallas is kind of doing. Doncic is putting up a lot of these nights. Uh, incredible usage numbers coming out of Dallas. Um, and Harden template from Houston, I think, is, is a fair precedent too. Yeah, so Harden um, led the league in scoring three consecutive years. Um, one of those years, I believe the last year he won MVP. His MVP year, his usage rate was 40.5. <laughs> That's right. So even more than the Kobe 36-point season, 35-and-change season, uh, where he averaged 27 shots. The, you know, the difference was, um, you know, Harden scored in different ways. Kobe did get to the line a lot, but not quite like Harden. Let me see here uh, what year that was. Nobody um, got to the line like Harden, except for maybe like Wilt or Shaq, who oftentimes were getting fouled on purpose. Right. Right. So Harden's most, his highest was 36.1. So uh, average per points per game. So that was slightly higher than Kobe's and he was getting the foul line um, 11 times. So slightly more than Kobe, but uh, yeah, I mean, um, you know, Harden shot the ball 25 times a game. So uh, slightly more efficient than Kobe, but, but comparable. And so, you know, you could say that, you know, Kobe got uh, got criticized a little bit for that year. Um, <laughs> the following year, he won the MVP for the first and only time. He got criticized a little bit for gunning, but you know, like I said, maybe he was head, ahead of his time. Um, speaking of Harden, uh, he has been appropriately um, dragged a little bit over the last couple of years. You know, you, you, when you ask for trades consecutive years and your teams underachieve in those years. Um, that's sort of the nature of it. And last year he was coming off of an injury. He just flat out didn't look very good. Um, this year, you know, he took the pay cut and was highly incentivized to come in in better condition and did. Then he had the foot injury and it wasn't, we weren't clear what we were going to get from him. 
So since he's come back, now they're, they're playing tonight in Los Angeles. So this happens on this podcast from time to time. I don't know what will happen. I don't know if he'll score 37 or he'll score seven or we'll have a great game or have a miserable game. But since he's come back, heading into tonight's game in L.A., um, he has played really good, Kirk. He's, um, he's, he's, not, <laughs> he's not averaging 36 anymore. Um, he is not the same player, but he is playing a lot of minutes. He's playing 37 minutes a game, um, and he's he's scoring 22 points. It's a lot less, um, but he's been he's looked a lot better to me at least. He's shooting 45 percent from the field, 40 um, percent uh, from three point range, which is key because he puts up a high volume of them, almost 80 game, um, and 11 and a half assists. He had a brilliant fourth quarter uh, Saturday night in Salt Lake city, uh, including the, the through a couple of just awesome passes, including basically the shot that won the game. Joel Embiid hit a shot where Harden drew a double team and he threw a behind the back. I can't remember if it was a bounce pass or if it was a, it was a behind pass. the back bounce pass on that right yeah. wing. And I think Joel, yeah. uh, hit like a 12, 15 footer over there. Yeah. And, and that was the difference in the game. They won by a point. Um, and uh, so look, you know, Harden is, is being judged a little bit on a curve. He's not the same player that he was when he was winning MVP. It was plus minus in these games since he's come back is, you know, he's averaging six uh, plus six a game. Um, and Embiid has been awesome. He has played great with Embiid. They don't always share the floor, but um, Embiid is averaging 34 points a game since Harden came back, and, and he's been great. Uh, what do you make of the way Harden is playing, a heliocentric player if there ever was one? <laughs> yeah, he invented this this part of this thing. I, I think you're exactly right to call him out right now. He's reinvented himself. He looks like the best he's looked, in my opinion, most comfortable he's looked since D'Antoni and him were in, in Houston together and making – you know, almost getting to the finals. But that Utah performance, as you say, was a bit of an anomaly, Brian. It was the first time he scored 30-plus since October. And what we're seeing from him right now, in my opinion, sort of gentler scoring numbers, uh, kinder passing numbers. And let me give you one stat, Brian, that tells you everything I think you need to know about what the kinder, gentler era of James Harden is bringing to Philadelphia. The stat is assist points created. The top five in that metric this season in reverse order, number five, the Mavs are getting 23.6 points off of his assists. At four, we have Trey Young, 23.9. At three, the two-time defending MVP, the best passing big man ever, Nikola Jokic, 24.3 points. At two, Tyrese Halliburton, who's technically leading the league in assists. His assists create 27 points for Indiana, but then we have the beard. And James Harden's assists, to me, this is the definitive stat that has changed the vibe around Philly. He's, his assists are creating 29 points per game for the Sixers. Uh, wow. And that number is creeping up. As you mentioned, he's been playing better since he came back. In his last 15 games, he's not scoring 30 points a game, but his teammates are scoring over 30 points a game off of his passes. I think that quarter you, you, you called out in Utah on Saturday, perfect example when he needed to make the right pass to Joel, he did it. Uh, and Joel made the shot, but he's not just feeding Embiid. He's the passer in four of Philly's top five passer-shooter combos. He's hooking up Maxi. He's hooking up Tobias. Uh, DeAnthony Melton's getting a lot of clean looks from three all of a sudden with James making these plays. So to me, he's being exactly what Philly needs him to be. 
next to Joel Embiid, who's an MVP candidate. He's being arguably the best facilitator in pro basketball right now. Uh, and if you have Joel and you have that, there's a reason they're a top five offense over the last 15 games or so. And he's he's he he and Joel working together are that reason, in my opinion. Yeah, Philly is um, they've they've had a bit of a soft schedule to this point. It's going to stiffen up. It's stiffening up on this West Coast trip. And then they, you know, basically when the NFL season ends, a lot of the made for TV matchups come into play. And because the networks couldn't be sure that uh, Durant was going to be on the nets, you know, Philly and Boston ended up filling a lot of those high end slots. So um, they have a coming into the week, they have the number one strength of schedule remaining. Um, So they're going to get tested, but um, they're playing their best basketball. So that is a, a really good sign. Um, one of the other things that you uh, mentioned in your story that uh, is running on Monday is um, just how the um, Eastern Conference is outplaying the Western Conference um, for the better part of what? Definitely two decades. Would it be probably since the Bulls domination in the 90s? The Western Conference has had more depth than the Eastern Conference um, year over year. Um some years it was laughable. Uh, occasionally, you would get the proposal of um, either dropping the conferences altogether, or the proposal of realignment to uh, better yeah, make it fair. Right. Because there were Eastern Conference teams that were that were making the playoffs regularly uh, at the back end of the of the of the bracket, who would not even sniff them in the West, and that happened, if not every year, a majority of years. Um, and that's not been happening. There's been this has been a this has been a process really for the last couple of years, but as you point out in this story, it is definitely complete. The Eastern Conference is now the you know on paper stronger conference, the champs in the West. But um, you you detailed it in the story. Yeah, I think you're right. Since Jordan, um, the NBA's balance of power has leaned to the left on on the map, and West teams have accounted for 16 of the last 24 championships. That's that's not a balance, and and if you followed the league as closely, obviously, as you, as you have. You've been a lot in, into those Western Conference gyms to see the best players in the league, the biggest games of the league. Uh, well, I think, you know, this story is about what are the big noteworthy trends of this season at the halfway point. And for me, also as a student of the league over the last 20 years, Brian, East is just better than the West. We just talked about the Sixers. Cavs are good. But the three top favorites – in the NBA right now are all Eastern Conference teams. And, and that says something because you would think a Western Conference team would have at least one of those slots because the Eastern Conference teams have to play each other to win the championship. But no, the Celtics are the clear favorite. They're followed by the Nets uh, and, of course, the Bucks. And all three of those teams have had issues but still have managed to log a, a good record in the first half of the year. Obviously, the Celtics had the coaching change drama the Nets had all kinds of drama and a coaching change. The Bucs started 9-0. and They have the fifth best record in the league, I think. And Chris Middleton has only played seven games. All three of those teams, when they are whole, look like legitimate championship contenders. The top of the East. And that's not counting Philly and, 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 um, and Cleveland and some others. But the West on the other side is part of this story, too. Because one of the trends in the first half of the year, too, is that there's just disappointment out there. There's 
name a team that we thought was going to be a contender. And if you look at the Vegas odds, one of the most telling things right now is, do you know who the favorite to come out of the West is according to Caesars right now, Brian? Um, I'm sure it's not the Nuggets. Um, no, it's the Golden probably, State Warriors who are in yeah, eighth right. place. They're in right. eighth place. They were the, the first defending champion since the Miami Heat of 2007 to go to the midway point under 500. They're not playing great. They just lost in, in Chicago here on Sunday. Um, but yeah, the, Memphis and Denver are great. Don't get me wrong. Don't get mad at me. I love those teams, but Vegas has them slotted way below their unproven playoff commodity. So I think it is an interesting trend for those of us who grew up in the sort of Jordan and post-Jordan era. Um, the East is so much more dominant right now at this point of this season than the West is. If only starting your fitness journey was as easy as starting this podcast. The truth is all the lift big, get big, and beach body ready in three weeks pressure stops most of us from even starting. And starting is what matters most. It's everything. Wherever you're beginning and wherever you want to be, Peloton encourages you to just start. With thousands of classes to get you moving and doing what you can, even if that's just a 10-minute low-impact class, they have those too. And when you're ready, take it up a gear with a 30-minute live DJ ride. Start with Peloton and find instructors that will keep you motivated to stay on your fitness journey. Learn the basics and build from there. Remember, doing something is everything. Get started with a Peloton bike or Bike Plus rental at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. Terms apply. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hitch, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's ever up there, whether it's the roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit DirecTV.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Yeah, today in um, in uh, in Chicago. I mean, I kind of thought this would be a pivotal road trip for the Warriors. A great opportunity, being healthy, um, to kind of make a statement and get their road, uh, you know, get off the schneid, as it were. Um, and today they got the Bulls without um, Demar, Demar Derozan, yeah, who had played every game all season until the last couple games, and they got slaughtered. Uh, by the Bulls, gave up 132 points. Uh, Nikola Vucevic had 43 in that game. Um, I'll bet he uh, hit his overs. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if that's a career high. I didn't look it up, but it's got to be close. Um, and you I mean just, which is just a reminder that one of the big issues that the Warriors have had this season is their defense. It's been an issue all year long, and. They remain under 500. I thought they'd get back over 500. I thought they'd have a good chance today, but didn't. Um, also a story that sort of slid under. So I was with the Warriors uh, earlier this week at the at the Alamodome game. And, uh, you know, they waxed the Spurs. It looks like they were getting on there for this big road trip. Uh, but one of the things that came out between that Alamodome game and the Chicago game was, was some quotes from Draymond Green. Something to the effect, Brian, I don't know if you saw this, the writing is on the wall. Uh, this is a business. People are taking that to mean that, you know, he might feel like he's already being 
uh, you know, cast aside in Golden State, but he's obviously the leader of the defense. And you mentioned it. Their defense has been the weakness all year. Uh, and, and when you look at that score in Chicago, you see that 132 points from a Bulls team that hasn't done that to many teams this year. That jumps off the page. The center position was 40 points. Well, who should be guarding that guy? Uh, and it, to me, it looks like this season is sort of teetering in Golden State. I'm not sure it's ever going to click. They're, don't get me wrong. Their ceiling is still the championship. But it, I don't, I don't know if we're going to see them really start to click this season. I, I, games like today just make me think it's not happening. Well, Draymond has a player option for next year. I can't remember if it's an opt-in or opt-out, but it's not like he controls his short-term destiny as being a warrior. Now, he, you know, he, I think you know, he kind of, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he kind of at the beginning of the year was like, yeah, they're going to take care of Poole and Wiggins, but they're not going to take care of me. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know what he's trying to do there. He's, you know, you got to be careful Draymond. He's always, he's really smart. So he's always playing an angle, but, uh, you know, he controls where he's going to be next year. Yeah. Uh, but I think it sounds to me like maybe I'm reading too much into it. It sounds to me like he's, he's openly upset about, uh, the contract situation and, and a perceived lack of respect is, is, is what is really what we're talking about here, whether the player who deserve, who feels like he deserves the next big contract, you know, this is not a new story, but the player who feels like that, not getting it uh, often, you know, can, can turn into an issue uh, on or off the court in a locker room setting. Yeah. Well, I would say I question, you know, obviously if Draymond became a free agent, there would be a lot of interest. But I'm not sure, sure there's going to be interest in the level of salary that Draymond might think that he's um, might think that he's you know supposed to get. Um, I'm going to look up right here. I wasn't ready for this, but I'm going to look up what his salary is this year and what it is next year. So he's making 25 this year, 25.8, and his his opt-in for next year is 27.5. I'm sure there would be a line of teams ready to sign him. I'm not sure any team is signing him for 27.5 for next year. So I don't think there's disrespect there from the Warriors. Um, you also yeah. talk, you also talk in the story about um, how, you know, we've, we have not seen a, uh, an American born MVP now in <laughs> four years. And um, that streak looks like it might go to five. Uh, Jason Tatum is uh up there, but um, you looked at uh, the um, the foreign player dominance and how it's dominating the MVP race with uh, Jokic, Embiid, Doncic, and Giannis. Yeah, I did. I think it's interesting. I, you know, I went to EuroBasket for a reason this past summer because you know a lot of these potential MVP candidates were playing for their countries over there, and it was it was great to see Luca play for Slovenia and Giannis play for Greece. Jokic play for Serbia. Uh, you add in Joel Embiid this season, obviously, uh, from, from overseas. Four of the top five MVP candidates are, are foreign-born players who, who, who really started playing hoops overseas. Um, and you mentioned Tatum. You know, it's interesting to me, just for context, 
the first 49 MVPs the league handed out, only one of them went to a four-bar player, uh, and that was Hakeem Olajuwon in 1993-94 season. Um, and as you mentioned, four four straight with Giannis getting two and Nikola getting two. We could legitimately see a streak of six or seven or eight years of international players. And I should mention, Brian, the guy you just went to see in person in Paris uh, is just further proof that and this is great. The globalization of the superstar is upon us. Uh, and and the, the most hyped draft prospect in a generation uh, is, is from France. So I think this trend is awesome. I think it's continuing. Um, I think USA basketball is just fine. I was looking at the 2024, 20, speaking of Paris, who might be able to play there. I, I no, no shots at USA basketball, but it is alarming to me just how fast these international superstars have taken charge of the MVP race. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was interesting to talk to to Victor about um, his preparation for the NBA. And, you know, he has been focused on being an NBA player since he was 14, 13 or 14. He moved away from home, although he stayed within Paris. It was 45 minutes from his uh, his home. But he moved away from home and started sort of playing like semi-professional basketball. I mean, he was, you know, living at the dormitory of a, of a team uh, when he was 14, you know, and he, his English is, you know, if you haven't heard him speak yet, <coughs> excuse me, his English is um, almost, almost perfect. And, uh, you know, typically people who were raised as French speakers have a heavy accent to the American ear. Um, and he concentrated on learning English because he knew it was important in basketball. And he learned English in large part because he was traveling abroad to play in, with various basketball things. Like, for example, he went and played with in Spain for one summer. He went and spent time training with Holger, Dirk's, um, uh, yeah, Dirk Nowitzki's trainer uh, in Germany. And, you know, they communicated in English, you know, and so like that, you know, he's been preparing for it. And he said to, to Jonathan Gavoni and I that he don't, almost doesn't think there was a better option for him than to grow up in France because um, it enabled him to have a really good training from a young age, better training than, than our teenagers typically get, quite frankly. Wow. Um, I mean, it's true. I mean, uh, you know, our teenagers at 14 don't go live at basketball. Basically, he, he wasn't at an academy. He was playing for a team, but he was basically, you know, 24. You know, he was he went to high school, but, you know, you know, and plus he he believes that the uh, the French way of coach. I mean, the, the France is putting forth all kinds of players into the NBA right now. Um, there's mm -hmm. more coming beyond Victor. So, um, he thinks it's like, of course he's going to be biased to the way he was raised. Right. But, <laughs> you know, he thinks the best way to come into the NBA is to hone your skills as a teenager in Europe and, uh, and then come over and he could have come to the U S um, he could have come to the U S and made a lot of money. Quite frankly, he could have gone to the ignite. Um, but he could have come to the U.S. when he was 16 or 17, and he elected to stay in Europe. And so we're seeing players like this really, um, you know, do really well. Um, and look, uh, I don't know how much people care about 
international basketball. Um, they care about it, I guess, when the Olympics is going on. But, you know, the Americans barely got the gold in Tokyo. And it wasn't mm-hmm. because they played poorly. It was because they played an Australian team in the semifinals that was spent 10 years building towards that game. And they got up by 15 and Kevin Durant bailed the, um, the Americans out. And in the final France who beat the U S in the opening game of the tournament um, gave the U S everything they, everything that they could handle. And uh, the French potentially are adding Wembenyama. I assume he'll be on the Paris team and also potentially could, could add Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid has French citizenship and American citizenship. Um, <laughs> and where are they playing those 2024 Olympics? I'm Brian. saying in Paris. Actually, yeah, they're playing most of the games in Lille, which is a whole different story. An hour train ride away, which is another story for another time. But um, the U.S., this is a thing that, you know, there were times when the U.S. would struggle, you know, not struggle, but, you know, when they wouldn't win. And it was like, well, they, they're not focused. They didn't put their, their act. They didn't have their act together. And, you know, in, in Greece in 2004, that was partially true. Um, they definitely didn't have their act together. But that was there were some really good teams at that time. The Argentinians um, who won the gold were uh, were an awesome team. This is no longer the case. Uh, the teams out there are really uh, much better, and France is one of them, and Serbia was one of them. But they're going to have Jokic and Greece. It's going to have Giannis, and uh, the in France is going to be loaded too. And they won the silver medal in the um, in the Olympics, and they won the silver medal in the Euro Cup, which is the uh, or Euro Basket last summer, which is the European Championships, which is the second. Uh, you know, toughest in some ways it might even be tougher because, um, you know, the Olympics, you get some teams from Asia that qualify that are maybe not the strongest teams, um, Asia and Africa, the African teams, I think, um, are a threat medium to long-term, but you're not necessarily getting the 16 best teams. Um, and, but, uh, in, in, in Europe, I mean, there's teams that, don't even qualify for the Olympics because they can't qualify out of Europe, you know? Um, right. And <clears throat> so, you know, for example, uh, Iran was in the U.S.'s group. Uh, Serbia didn't qualify in the, the Olympics. And, you know, and Iran did because they won the Asian. Uh, they, they came out of Asia. And I promise you, Serbia was more of a threat <laughs> to the U.S. <laughs> than Iran was. Um Anyway, that's uh, beside the point. Um, you also took a look. We've talked about it a little bit on this pod. Um, speaking of international players, um, at what has happened with Rudy Gobert in Minnesota, which you term, I hope this is still in the story, the version I read, you term the Gobert catastrophe. Um, and it wasn't just about Rudy, the way he's playing for the, for the wolves. Um, what were you looking at with this? Well, this is why I'm, I'm glad I'm talking to you because I'm starting to think that that's going to be a bad precedent for just player movement and trade the future of blockbuster trades. <laughs> because if you're a seller of a star post Gobert trade, obviously you say, Hey, if Rudy Gobert was worth, that 
amount, four picks, right? Plus Walker Kessler, plus all the players. If Rudy Gobert got that, then my guy, let's just say it, first one that comes to my mind, Bradley Beal. Don't read into that. Bradley Beal is worth this. Uh, and so, oh my God. So I think the sellers are gonna sort of raise their asking prices on these guys naturally because the market has been set. And then on the flip side of that marketplace, the buyers are now going to be gun shy because they have a very recent cautionary tale. Because simply put, you know, I can go into the Gobert trade hasn't made Minnesota's defense better, uh, let alone their team better. Um, and they just emptied the cupboard, Brian. They just emptied the cupboard in a way that would make LeBron James proud. They just emptied out all the draft picks <laughs> and said, Hey, we were betting it on, we're betting the farm on Gobert. But I think that classic uh, meme with Jordan bleep them kids, you know? So I'm trying to try to, <laughs> I'm trying to draw, connect the dots between this, this catastrophe of a trade and the larger market itself, not to be Bobby Marks, but I think the, the prices are going to be higher and the buyers are going to be more reticent. Now I was talking to a general manager today and like all of our discussions, we are now into the, into the, um, the, the, the trade deadline talk, everything has got to be about trade deadline. I got to tell you very little concrete, um, that I'm getting a good feel for right now, but, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, this GM brought something up that I hadn't thought about, you know, there's a CBA negotiation going on right now. One of the things that we expect to be different is we expect the tax levels to be different. And I know that this is such, you know, inside the weeds and I don't really want to get into it, but it's possible that in an effort for competitive balance, that there's going to be even more of a punishment on teams that go way deep into the tax because the Golden State Warriors, with the biggest payroll in history last year, won the title. Mm. And had they not won the title, had they lost in the West Finals, had they lost in the finals, and this not been a CBA year, I'm not sure that there would be much of a difference. But because that happened, there is some effort to, and, there, and people are looking at the Clippers who are even outspending the Warriors this year. And Things like we got to rein this in, and so part of the, the the reticence, I think, of there being big names traded, big money moved, is that teams are not going to know necessarily the tax rules. And if you're going to, even if you're getting a star player, you're going to add a guy making forty some million dollars a year to your books for years. There's some concern that without knowing the rules, that could be dangerous. It could just further tamp down this trade deadline. The NFL schedule drops this week, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code HOOP. That's code HOOP. Download the app or visit vividseats.com today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavily on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue and ready for the play. And boom, Onyeho Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. 
another great cocktail from the hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic in tequila season. Hypnotic liquor, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Yeah, I, I think that's true too. And one other thing on the horizon along the same lines is a potential giant spark in BRI caused by a new media rights deal in 2025 uh, that, that could have us see the salary cap um, expand quite a bit again in the near future. And and all those rules change. So will players themselves be, be trying to line up um, their own contract years to align with that? Uh, is something that I was talking to people about this weekend. Um, are, so there's a lot at play. I just think like this go bear thing has gone so bad for Minnesota early um, that it's going to be hard for anybody to take a lot of risks. Nobody wants to have that on their, on their resume. If they're a front office, I can tell you, nobody wants to make that kind of deal and sort of mortgage their future on a player that doesn't work out. Uh, right away. That appears to be what's happening in Minnesota. Gobert's shot defense numbers have fallen. I mean, this guy was legitimately one great shot defenders of, of our era. Uh, and now he is still very good, but that, and as I mentioned, it hasn't translated to the holy metric on defense, defensive rating last year, Minnesota was 13th in the league, Brian, without Gobert this year, they're 18th with Gobert they didn't that, make this when trade I read to that be eighteen. oh my god I know when I read that number and obviously they don't have Towns he's been out for a month now with the calf injury they've had other injury challenges but when I read that number I was like oh my gosh because they thought what they were giving up potentially offensively they thought were going to be mitigated by their defense and you know I went there in the preseason and spent time with all their people and listened to their rationale. And I wasn't a hundred percent sold, but I kind of understood what their thinking was. And um, it was all based on the reality that no matter what go, their defense would improve. I mean, it was, it was more about, okay, well, our defense will improve. So these other things that it opens up, you know, it'll be, a, it'll be a balancing act. And um yeah, yeah, I compared yeah. it to I compared it to like trading for Clay Thompson or Stephen Curry somehow in a hypothetical and seeing our three point numbers <laughs> plummet. Like that would be that's when you trade for Rudy Gobert, you expect the deep top ten at least. Now they're bottom half of the league uh, in, in a wide open West. They can't even make noise. So I think I think that's troubling, and I think it is it is going to ripple. You know, it's going to have ripples around this trade deadline. I don't, I don't think there's going to be a lot of, uh, in part because yeah. nobody wants to be the next Minnesota here. Yeah, and that actually, you know, that I think that impacts like a team like the the New York Knicks, who are doing pretty well. Uh, they had a, a nice win on Sunday. Uh, Julius Randle had 42 points. They uh, beat the, uh, I believe it was the Pistons. Um, the Knicks are doing really well. You know, they're they're in sixth place right now. They're six games over 500, and everybody's waiting for their big trade. But, you know, when you look at a team like the Wolves, <coughs> and to a lesser extent, a team like the Cavs, you know, they made the big offseason trades. 
neither of them are really equipped to significantly upgrade their roster now. Um, it's like, you know, and, and both of them would say, well, we've got Anthony Edwards, we've got Gobert, we've got Carl Towns, we've got some other nice pieces. Um, we don't, we don't, we have our impact players, but like, how do you upgrade the roster? Same with the Cavs. They have really good players, but how do they upgrade their roster? You don't want to put yourself in a position where you swing for the fence. And even if you make contact, you limit your ability to truly improve. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a situation I think a team like New York, and not now, but a team like Houston or a team like Oklahoma City could be in in a year or two. Like you look at the Thunder, who are really, really improved and uh, are threatening to make the playoffs. They got all these draft assets, and they've got this, you know, really good young player, Shea Gildas Alexander. Who knows what will happen when they bring uh, Chet Holmgren into the to the mix? They have to, as they build their team around them. Like it's real simple to say, oh, we'll just trade five first round picks for Bradley Beal. <laughs> well, okay, right. but then first off, Beal has a no trade clause. That's one thing to point out as you think about your Beal trades. Um, but you have to also keep in mind that you don't want to get yourself in a position where you've built a team that has a limited ceiling. And that's where the Knicks really were last summer. Like you can say that they made a huge mistake and not getting Donovan Mitchell. You can create that case. And I, I won't argue with that. Now, obviously the way Donovan is playing him being on the Knicks, it would have been a huge thing for Madison square garden. And frankly, At ESPN, when the Knicks are relevant and good, it's better for business. And they haven't been relevant and good in a long time. But what the Knicks were looking at was, okay, we really believe in Jalen Brunson, and he's had a really nice year, been a terrific signing. Um, We really believe in Jalen Brunson, and we think Donovan will be great, but we don't think that that's a contender. So we can't give everything that we've got or 85% of what we've got in our trade kitty and then we have no way to meaningfully improve. And they were basically holding out to do a deal where they could be comfortable and still having assets afterwards. And the Cavs did an end run on them. And the Cavs, you know, the Cavs' big bet is that Evan Mobley's improvement will be the way that they lift all their boats. And it's not the worst bet in the world. And they have plenty of time. This season for the Cavs, just getting to the postseason, in my view, I don't care if they finish sixth, getting to the postseason is a nice step forward for them. They haven't made the postseason without LeBron in 25 years. Um, But the Gobert trade not only is going to scare teams, but as you mentioned, it's kind of like with our economy right now. The market is inflated. Yep. You know, and uh, it's going to probably have to self-correct. You know, you see... You hear what these teams asking prices are for high level role players and, you know, wanting multiple first round picks and stuff. And you're like, in what world? And the answer is in the world where Rudy Gobert gets four firsts. Yeah. And and, and in a world where DeJounte Murray gets three. And and I think, yeah, I think. At least DeJounte Murray was an all-star last year. (laughs) Rudy was an all-star three times in a row. And uh, but let me tell you something about that Knicks Cavs thing. As, As somebody was in the front office in a small market team, in theory, there are three ways to build a basketball team in pro basketball. You have the draft, free agency, and trades. Well, in the current marketplace of superstars, free agency is really only available to about 10 
teams to be kind. Uh, Cleveland, Oklahoma City, San Antonio, Minnesota, we're not getting LeBron James or Paul George or Kawhi Leonard beating down our door to come join us uh, on his second or third big contract. Uh, so that's why some of these actors are going to be more aggressive in the trade market when a superstar does become available. And another layer is it seems like international players are more likely to stay in those smaller markets. If you look at Jokic, Doncic, historically players like Duncan, Manu. Um, if Even if you're the Knicks, and I know the jokes write themselves, free agents don't always go to the Knicks. Okay, I get it. But at least if you get it right, you will start getting free agents there. You do not have to go all in on a trade uh, if you think you boring free agency slowly. Superstars, it takes one. Um, and I think that's a difference on that Donovan conversation that needs to be. Cleveland had to be aggressive. That's the only play, chance to get Donovan Mitchell's in a trade. Uh, you can be the Knicks and at least talk yourselves into, I think I can get a player like that in free agency. Uh, and so that's a distinction here between the, the Oklahoma cities, the Denver's, uh, and teams like the Knicks, the Lakers, the Warriors, and stuff like that. So I think that's that's interesting too. I think it's even more challenging than that because superstar players don't just decide where they want to go to in free agency. More and more, they decide where they want to go to in trade. Yeah, fair point. So this doesn't happen with every case. It didn't happen with Donovan Mitchell, but – you know, there are certain, you know, certainly James Harden did certainly, you know, Russell Westbrook did multiple times in a row, Harden multiple times in a row. Um, Kawhi Leonard, when I was in Kawhi, San Antonio, let it be known where he wanted to land. Yeah, you're exactly yeah, right. He didn't get, he didn't get what he wanted, but he tried, <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, if you're a team like San Antonio or a team like Oklahoma city, you know, not only are you not going to be, uh, you know, even, a place like Memphis, you know, like right. um, I think after signing Chandler Parsons and having that blow up in their face, I think they're gun shy about going into the free agent market. I think, you know, they're like, look, we we're going to draft and develop. And so like, if you're Oklahoma city, you, you may, you know, let's say for example, Oklahoma city, let's say Chet Holmgren comes back next year and is rookie of the year candidate. And Josh Kitty, who's been playing great for this last month, he had a great game today uh, in Brooklyn. Um, just uh, the the Thunder have just had a great road trip, and they just uh, won by double digits in Brooklyn today. Um, you know, let's just say they're they're running hot. Let's say uh, you know they've got two guys named Jalen Williams. <laughs> they're both starting. Uh, let's say one of those guys is like um, you know uh, all rookie this year, and, and let's just say like the they're hot. They look great. And they decide next year they want to go all in. And they say, okay, we want to trade for Bradley Beal. And I don't think they would ever do this, by the way. I don't think it's on the same time schedule. Well, Bradley Beal so, is a, yeah. you know, Bradley Beal has a, you know, is a is a no trade clause. He can control where he goes. Um, um, you know, I don't want to start any rumors about players that I think could potentially be available, but you know, player X becomes available, you know, superstar X. And, you know, he says, oh, well, uh, the Lakers haven't traded those 2027 and 29 picks yet. Um, <clears throat> you know, Miami, um, you know, players always want to go to Miami, you know? <laughs> yes. So um, it's, it's, it's actually like even harder, which is why the draft capital to those 
places matters even more, which is why the draft picks are even harder to to move once they've sort of clustered. Well, again, it's exactly right. Circling all the way back to Minnesota's choice here. Those draft picks in Minnesota are so valuable compared to, say, draft picks for the Lakers or the Warriors um, or these prestige markets, Miami, that can can kind of rely on other team building avenues to, to get talent into the building. I think that's a great point, Brian. And like that's why like Utah will probably want to hold on to them because, you know, um, they're going to, you know, if you look at the, how Utah has gotten players when they've had good teams, they got him through the draft. So um, it's interesting. Um, all right. Well, thank you for sharing your uh, your intelligence with us, Kirk. Thank you for um, uh, listening to the Hoop Collective Podcast. Uh, we've got uh, another exciting week uh, coming up, and uh, we will talk to you soon.